Thanks for being with us on our series called Family of Tomorrow. We have focused on four key truths throughout this series. And the first one is this, that we need to realize what's real in our family isn't always ideal. And uh, so as we as we go about a series like this, I know it's tempting, even it's tempting as I'm putting this together, to draw the perfect picture of the family and to have you fit into that and to frustrate you with that. But that's not what this is about. This is about us realizing what the reality that's in our families and then uh, inviting God into our story because God's got a bigger story than we're crafting for our families. We want to know that story and we want to ask him to be a part of that. We want to take heart, though, because history reveals a perfect God using imperfect families to tell his stories and tell his story. And I think about that. And, you know, there is no perfect family in the Bible. Those of you who are trying to craft a biblical family, you don't want to do that. It's imperfect families, family who have messed up, family who haven't lived by the book. And yet it's included in God's story. Why? Because God's character, his perfection wants to be shown in imperfection in our families. And that's what I want you to think about. Your less than ideal family exists to reflect the heart of God to every generation. That's what God wants to do with our families. He wants to reflect his heart through us. So right That's why we're always going to call you the best time to respond to God. The best time to invite him into your family is now, not another day. Don't let another day go by. The best time to follow his lead in your family is right now. Now, whether you're married or not, have children or not, uh, you all play a role in a family. And therefore, we're calling everyone to act on this. Act on the reality that that transformation tomorrow happens when you invite God into your family today and follow his way. On this fourth week of a daily question that if we answer today our atti- in our attitudes and our actions, God will transform tomorrow. But what I want to talk to you about today is heavy on my heart. It has to do with all of you, and me included, who have some brokenness in our family. Things have happened in our families that haven't just been less than ideal. We're talking about that have hurt us and uh, are continuing perhaps even in our families. Maybe the words dysfunction, conflict, hurt, brokenness, fractures, fighting, disagreement, pain, separation, divorce. Maybe when these words are used to describe your family. Here's what I hear all the time when I meet with people talking about these issues. They go, "Ah, it wasn't great, but you know what? It is what it is. Or even, yeah, it's no big deal. I'm over it now. The reality is, is it's. It is a big deal. It's a major issue in our lives. It's this dark hole that that dominates thinking and even motivation. And if we're honest, we all have them. We all have them in our families. We have tension with a father or mother, a brother or sister, a son or daughter. Something was said. Something was done. People were terribly hurt and wounded. And it just went downhill from there. Matter of fact, even as I mention this, people have been uncomfortable with me mentioning about it. I mean, Joe, I come to church to get away from that. And, and really what we want to be is people who are authentic and we're open, we're vulnerable, and we're trusting God with key areas of brokenness in our lives. Can I ask you a quick question? If this is your background, if this is your reality, when do you think is the best time to seek reconciliation? 
Who do you think in your family could be most equipped, most resourced to be an agent of reconciliation? The key point of my message today is that Christ's love compels me to reconcile. It's not going to come from me. And it won't because you can't do this on your own. You've tried and many of us have ended up in the same place. And that's why it can only come from him. Reconciliation comes from a God who reconciles to us. But if God were to work in you, what could be that first step of reconciliation in your family? I want you to think about that first step because it's easy to get wrapped up in that last step. You know, that last step where we say, I love you. I'm sorry. And you hug and a herd of unicorns comes galloping by you and a rainbow and birds start chirping. That's something It's really that's far off. You might not be able to think like that right now. I don't want you to think about that last step. I want you to think about that first step because that's how God works with us. God's interested in that first step. It was that first step in my life many years ago that I realized I can't save myself, but Jesus can. And so I took that first step of trusting Jesus to save me. And I've been taking one step after another from that point on in key areas of my life. See, 2 Corinthians 5.20, we're going to be hanging out in 2 Corinthians 5 today. It literally says, This, it says, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. God, as his very nature, is a God of reconciliation. And if we're going to be people who bear his name, Christians, Christ followers, we need to be people who are willing to reconcile with key areas of our lives and key people in our lives, which for most of us involves our families. Why do we resist this, though? I don't know about you, but I've, I've found four resistors in my own life of why I resist God's reconciliation in my life. And the first one is hurt. I'm hurt. When someone hurts you, it hurts. There's pain associated with when someone sins against you or, or hurts you. And it's easy to go, I'm hurt, you caused it. And so, therefore, any type of reconciliation is since they did the pain... I, they need to act and make that right. And so there's this standoffish expectation that someday the light's going to come on and that other person, they're going to go, I'm sorry. And we wait for them to say that before we take any steps. Positive steps, that is. Hurt keeps us from reconciliation. Secondly, fairness does. Did you realize, I'm sorry to burst your bubble, that life is not fair? It's not. If you're in seventh or eighth grade, welcome to the club of maturity. That's the whole picture. Life isn't fair. There's things in this world that that could be a whole lot better. There's people in this world who get bad deals. And that happens in the family. I just remember in my own family, I've got three boys. Our first one, we were like these OCD, high control. Don't let him out of that pacifier. It fell on the ground. Oh, disinfect it. And he goes to bed through 16 at 8 o'clock at night and all this kind of stuff. And our third one, pacifier drops on the ground. It's okay. Five second rule. Here you go. Back in the mouth. And then now you got a 930 bedtime. And, And our first was going, come on, that's not fair. Went to bed a lot earlier. And you did that. I had so many rules in your, you know, we count sometimes. And sometimes 
it's the reality that some kids in our family get preferential treatment. And if you're someone who's high fairness, you're counting and you're going, man, it's not as it should be for me. And sometimes it's just the appearance of that. That's the burden of it's not fair. And I, or even when you're in your walk with the Lord, with your heavenly father, and you go through a difficult time, and the answer that God gives you isn't not the one that you demanded from him. God, give me a good job. I want a really good relationship. That relationship doesn't work out, and you, you, get, you lose that job. And come on, I don't deserve this, because we think, we think that since we're in the family, we get the family privileges, and the father serves us. And the reality is, is that we weren't, God doesn't answer to anyone. We're here to serve him, not expecting him to be like our genie in the bottle. I pray to you, you do what I want you to do. It's easy to have a picture of fairness. And here's the truth about God. He's not fair. He's not fair. Oh, really? He's not? No, God's not fair. Do you get what you deserve? No, because we deserve hell. Through Christ, we get heaven. He treats us far better than we deserve. Third area is judgment. I don't know about you, but when someone commits an offense against me and they're more, you know, they're over the 50% on responsibility, I become the judge. In my head, I kind of build the case and I present the evidence and I enact the judgment. It's all on my terms and I rarely speak to others, but inside I hold court. And that other person, I make judgments on them. I either get even or I, you know... I withhold love. That's the tendency when we see ourselves as the judge. You're wrong. You're responsible. I found this is even the technique of people who don't believe in an absolute moral truth like God. But they they know when they're hurt, they want justice. We cry out for that. Why is there? Why is that? Maybe, just maybe, there's something within us created in the image of the ultimate judge that we cry out for justice. And then there's revenge. Wow, this is justice in our own hands, isn't it? I will judge. I will punish you, we say. And the cycle of revenge begins and it repeats. And boy, families are hotbeds for revenge happening. You do this for me. I do that to you. And the problem is that with each act of revenge, the capacity, your capacity to hurt others, it just deepens and it darkens. Some of us are just really good at revenge. Because you become what you practice in your lives. So why reconcile? Why should we reconcile with our families? Many of us, we just go, boy, I've tried. I've tried and it's not going to work. I tried before. I'm giving up and I get away from my family. I don't want to engage my family. Why should I be the one? Why? Well, frankly, family relationships are pivotal and powerful. It's easy to say you don't care and to walk away, but it's much harder to manage and contain the hurt of family in your lives. I found it's uh, really difficult for us to um, kind of kind of just take it and tuck it away and not have it show itself in our lives. I mean, there were words my parents said that I, when it happened, I just said, I'll never say that. Like, I'm going to pull this car over, you know? And what did I do with my three boys? Guys, I'm going to pull the car over. 
And where did those come from? Cheryl even looked at me and said, thought you weren't going to say those. Yeah, on a bad day, we end up repeating those. Why? Because they're powerful. They're powerful. How our kids learn to navigate through challenges, navigate through reality. Where do they learn that? They learn that from us. Where did you learn it? Probably from your parents. If nothing happens, guess what will repeat itself in you? I know we don't like to agree that, do that. And I know many of us are living our lives not to repeat what happened in the past. But it's powerful. And therefore, changes today can mean a pivotal difference in tomorrow. Secondly, family relationships leave a, a relational legacy. Now, I know when we think legacy, many of us think inheritance, okay? So we think that's that 401k, which I know this week is now a 301k. But that happens, and you kind of go, what am I going to do? What, what can I leave my kids financially? I don't want you to think about finances right now. I want to think about something that's priceless. It's your character. Do you know that your character transfers in your family? You may not be married, have a child, but if you're an aunt or uncle, that character transfers to nieces and nephews. How do I know? Because that was my character that I was able to pass on to some of my nieces before I was married. That's powerful. And that's what your kids, your grandkids, your nieces and nephews, folks, that whole picture is, is that kids learn to navigate conflict. They learn to navigate even authority. So when your six-year-old is called out by the umpire and you go, come on, Blue, what do you do? What do you just do? You just challenge authority. Do you want them to challenge authority all the time in life? No, no, you don't. Well, that's why you go, well, do as I say, not as I do. Sorry, that doesn't work. There are some things that are taught that your kids can grasp, but the things that they catch, the things that are caught, that's their character. That's how they behave. How do you, how do you handle it when life doesn't go the way you want it to go? You teach your kids how to handle reality. How do you handle failure? How do you han- handle envy or comparison? Guess who's watching? Dun, dun, dun. Yes, I mean, I hate to break it to you, but, but you pass on that relational legacy. And that's why if there's been patterns that are just repeating itself in your life, guess what? You pass it on to others. Oh, how we'd love to just contain it in ourselves. And, and I know we, we, we buck authority or responsibility and we just go, ah, it's just the way I am. It's the way I am. But think with me. Let's be honest. Wasn't it the way your father was? Wasn't it the way your grandfather was? Wasn't it the way? I mean, that happens. That passes on unless we address it right now. That's why we reconcile now so we can stop it now. And finally... If you're a follower of Jesus, guess what? You have no choice. I'm sorry to break it to you this way. But the reality is, is, is folks, a follower of Jesus, here's a definition. Ready for it? They follow Jesus. And Jesus is a reconciler. The love of Christ compels us to reconcile. Everything we have with God is because he willingly chose To reconcile with us. Did he wait for us to come to him? No, he came to us. 
Did he wait for us to measure up to a level of performance before our character could outweigh our bad deeds and then we could have a relationship with him? No, no, no. In our sin, Jesus died for us. Jesus is our model on this one. And although our tendency is to get even and to withhold love, we're called to Christ, the single most important relationship in our lives. Jesus is our model. He's the reconciler, and he's going to teach us how to reconcile. In this passage, if you would turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to learn who we are in Christ. We're also going to learn how, what does it mean uh, that, that we're a Christ followers in this area of reconciliation. Turn there with me. We're going to start with verse 17. It says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us this ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Before we move on and apply this, let me just give you a quick theology lesson. This is what God has done for us. He reconciled with us. When humanity sinned against God way back in the garden, God could have chosen just to reboot, refresh, start over. But instead, he endured with us. And he chose to reconcile with us, those who walked away, those who rebelled from him. It's his pattern. He's worked through the sacrifices in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, we meet Jesus. And Jesus came to live a life we couldn't live. Everything we needed with God was provided in the person and the work of Jesus. Jesus lived that perfect life. You need a perfect life. You need someone to live this life for you perfectly because that's God's righteous requirement. Can we be perfect? Answer, no. Can you be better than the person next to you? Yes. Are you compared to the guy or the woman next to you? No. You're only compared to Christ. And the, 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 the phrase God gives you in, in the book of Romans is that we've all have sinned. We all fall short of God's glory. And therefore, Jesus had to live that perfect life for you. But he didn't just live for you. He died for you. Because on the cross, here's what Jesus did. He took the wrath of God for you. He took the punishment for your sin on him, on his body. And by dying, all my sin and yours has been placed on him. Is it fair? No. Do you get what you deserve? No. But what do you have? Instead of God's wrath, you have his righteousness. You have, instead of his rejection, you have his acceptance. Instead of his punishment, you get his love. That's what Jesus has done. And he took it upon himself to reconcile with us. Romans 3, Paul kind of develops this even more. And he said that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
God is not only our judge, but he is the one who set us free. He took care of all this. It's all from him because he is a God who reconciles people to himself. When you come to Christ, you're saying, I accept the work of God in my life. I turn from my works, from my attempts. I stop trying and I start trusting in the only one who can save me. And once you've trusted in Christ, then you follow him and you become someone who once is reconciled to God. You then become someone who calls others not only to reconcile with God, but if they've hurt you, reconcile with you. As far as it depends on you, as as much as you can, live at peace with all people. That's the biblical directive of a follower of Christ. And when Jesus did this, when he reconciled, he communicated three powerful words to us. And when we reconcile with others, we can communicate those powerful words in our families. First one is this. Jesus communicated forgiveness. Forgiveness literally means that our sins have been let go of us. They've been taken away from us. And because the person and the work of Jesus, forgiveness is no longer counting sins anymore. God is not counting our sins anymore. And he's not recounting them. When someone hurts you and they hurt you and they've kept on hurting you, you count you recount and, and you build the case for revenge based on how many sins against you. It's always a greater cost. The person be, only becomes deeper and deeper in a hole. Who will set them free? Who does God look to? To, to set people free of sin. He, he looks as a follower of him. He looks to you and your family. We could get even, we can build the case, but ultimately we've got to reflect someone greater than ourselves. Jesus did this with you. It means that you stop counting and start setting them free of your wrath. Forgiveness always comes at a cost. If something was taken from you and you forgive someone, it hurts. I've rarely forgiven someone said, "Woo, that is so awesome. It hurts. Do you see the picture of Jesus forgiving us in agony? It's him taking the punishment for our sin in agony. It always hurts. But the result is priceless. Reconciliation, a relationship, how it ought to be. Secondly, Jesus communicated restoration. Through Christ, this passage says, we, instead of having the wrath of God, we have the righteousness of God. And because what God has done to reconcile us, we're called a new creation. We have a new mission in life. We are ambassadors. We're called to reconcile, to to call others to reconcile. And if you have Jesus, Jesus is looking at you and saying, if not you and your family, who? You know me. You see the truth. You see who I am. You see the remedy of your hurt and your brokenness. Start. Follow me. Who are the great ones in life? They're people who practice forgiveness and restoration. When you meet these people, 
you see more than themselves. You see God. Like a guy I met two and a half years ago when I was in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia at a pastor's conference. Pastors from all over Africa came there and I met a guy from Rwanda. He actually lived through the Rwandan genocide of 1994 from April through July. Those horrific months where in, in most conservative estimates, half a million people died in this genocide. It was, uh, Brought up by the Hutus, the, the majority tribe there, and they attacked the Tutsis, were the smaller tribes there. And they literally did not have guns, so they hacked them to death. People ran to churches for refuge, and they pursued them into the churches, and investigators found there's a bloodline from six feet high down to the ground of blood where people were just killed and slaughtered. One of the worst atrocities. In, in our history, and this, this guy who I met, his brother and his wife and his children were hacked to death in their homes. And a guy in his village sold the home that he had killed them and lived in that home. And this guy, when things kind of quelled down, things quieted down, he started planning to get even. And he started making the plan. This is how I'm going to do it. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to freak into that house. And he had this whole elaborate plan, but it took him six years, six years to get this plan and to, to have that date that would make most sense to him in his plan. And as that country of Rwanda started healing, someone came to his village and taught him about Jesus, about how God took on his punishment And how God paid for the price of his sin, treated him far better than he deserved. And instead of wrath, he receives mercy. And it cut this man to his heart. And he he believed in Jesus and he started following Jesus and he started comparing this plan of his own for revenge with God's plan of restoration in his life. And he realized, I can't do this anymore. So he moved his life away from revenge And one day, God gave him the courage to knock on the door of that guy who killed his brother and family. And he said, I want you to know that I have planned for the past six years to come here and kill you and to get even for the murder that you did against my family. But Jesus has come into my life and Jesus has taught me that 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 would just be something that would create more problems, that that would be something that's not the way he treats me, and I'd like to learn how to treat you with the same grace that Jesus has given to me. And the man was cut to his heart. He broke down in, in tears and, and was, it was kind of ruined for, for the reality that was right before him. Folks, when he's telling me this story, guess who becomes great? See, just pause with me. If he would have gone and gotten even and killed that man family, we would have gone, oh, it makes total sense to me. And after all, it's fair, right? But he didn't. That would have been normal. We might have been able to excuse it or at least understand the motive there. But what did he give to that man in return? He gave him Jesus. What do you give to your family when you seek restoration? You give them Jesus. What do you give them when you seek revenge? You give them more of the same, more of the patterns just repeated in your generation. And then finally, because God's reconciling God, we get grace. And grace is, quite frankly, undeserved love. And you know what? Your your capacity to love 
is not shown in the people of your life in your lives who are easy to love. Anyone can love them. But rather in loving people who are very different than you, even more so the ones who have hurt you. See, it's normal to get revenge. It's godly to give love. And when you reconcile, you give a deep, undeserved, yet freely given love. You give grace. Do you want grace in your family? Do you want your family to start beginning practices that are more grace-centered than revenge-centered? Again, if not you, who? If not now, when? We have an opportunity right now to again look at that transforming question. And it's a little business card you were handed on the way in here. And it's the question that if you answer today in your attitude and your actions, God will use to transform tomorrow. And again, as I mentioned, these are very difficult with deep, deep wounds to, to, uh, to talk about in our families and to talk about and process in an environment like this. And I'm not asking you to worry about the last step, but I do want to confront you with what I think is the heart of God today on what might be the first step. And that is, what are you doing today to show that you care? That person who's hurt you, that person who you're at odds with, that person who you're living in conflict with, what are you doing today to show that you care? So many times I hear this, I don't care about them anymore. It's no big deal. It is a big deal. You wouldn't be worrying about it if it didn't matter. So what's the first thing you can do today to show that person that you care about them? The first step might be just stopping talking about them behind their back. Stop cutting them down. Stop gossiping. Start, stop building the case and just cease fire from anything that you would do to tear them down. And that's your first step. Just stop gossip. Stop tearing them down. Stop the mean statements. Stop the you don't understand kind of statements anymore. Some of us, it might be a phone call to see how they're doing. Do I even talk to them in three years? What would it mean for you just to, to call them? Even if they answer, what do you want? <laughs> that first contact. Some of you might want to write a note telling them you're thinking and praying for them. So many times it's just easy to say, God, get them. That's not praying for them. That's getting even. You just want to use God's power to accomplish your purposes. Others, it might be setting up a meeting to share your heart. I remember that there was a time in my life. I was in my 40s and I'm kind of embarrassed to say this, but I'm now 50. So I... Okay, I was in my 40s, and I was just wondering, why am I so driven to work so hard? Why do I count my hours? Why do I, I just pour my life into my job, into ministry and things like that? What am I trying to prove? And you know what? The best I could do it as I was processing, I went all the way back to 12 years old when I was working at my dad's store. And I was this skinny, kind of scrawny guy. I still am in some ways. Um, and, and I couldn't lift the carpet my brother could, could lift. And he was brawn. He could handle a whole bunch of stuff. And I remember I was working. My dad came out of his office because it was a family business. I was talking with one of my dad's friends. And he goes, hey, Ray, don't talk to Joe. He has a hard thing doing two things at one time. And I just started believing from that point that I'm not a good worker. 
And so I wanted to prove to my dad and everyone else around me that I am a focused, good, hard worker, diligent. You know what? I had to have a meeting with my dad when I was in my 40s. I said, Dad, I am sorry I did this, but you said something to me when I was 12 years old. You probably don't even remember it, but you said this to me, and this is what I, I believed it. I really believed it, and I've been living my life. Dad, am I a hard worker? Joe, Joe, you're one of the hardest working pastors I've ever met. I know you think our pastors only work on two days out of the week, you know. But that was freeing for me. Maybe you need to have a conversation about something you're carrying. And, and you know what? There's so many times that we're blind to it. So many times your parents might have been blind to it. And the definition of blindness is, folks, you just can't see it. So you need someone else who sees the truth in our blind spots to be able to call it, lovingly call it, but call it. And when someone does that to you, be an agent of reconciliation. Maybe it's saying, I'm sorry. Maybe it's saying, you may not have, you may have not intended to do this, but this is how I took it. And just start being someone who seeks reconciliation. Maybe you need to seek counsel from a professional for help to help process this. Even someone in this room who thinks that things are just fine. Would you be open to someone else in your family confronting you about something they might be holding against you? Would you be open to that? Because that's an agent of reconciliation. Your first step is to make your life available for reconciliation. The reconciliation of Jesus. I want you to think about this now, right now, because it's easy when you're hurt. It's easy when you're hurting to always be looking at what's required from the other person. And I don't want you to think about the other person right now. I want you to think about you. Think about a mirror being in front of you. What do you see? And what might be your first step? You see, we need a defining moment for all of our lives in the area of reconciliation, where we look to God and whatever he asks us to do, we follow him. Uh, after all, it is our, val- our, our values here are to love deeply, to live authentically, to leave a godly legacy. Not just people who know it and people who can talk about it, but people who actually live reconciliation. So here's what I want you to do. We don't do this every week, but I think this is a special thing to talk about. If you are willing to take the first step towards reconciliation, whatever that might look like, I want you to stand. I'll take the first step in my family to reconcile. Stand. Thank you. Thank you. God bless you. God's gotten a hold of your heart. And instead of watching it or repeating it, you're going to be someone who just says, I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't even know what the end picture I'm going to stand. I'm going to be that agent of reconciliation. Okay. Now, since this is a church where no one stands alone, in solidarity and in appreciation of the work of God in your life, we as your church family want to stand around you. So would everyone else stand up around them, showing them your support, your prayer. You're trusting them to God.
Let's pray for each other. Heavenly Father, you are alive and at work in the hearts of your followers. You know every situation here. You know every circumstance and how deep it cuts into who we are and how our view of ourselves. And you have chosen, first of all, to reconcile to us and then for us to reconcile with you and others. Lord, I commit every person who is courageous and willing to be that first step, to take that first step in their families. And I pray that you would bless them. Give them a greater appetite for reconciliation because they took this first step. And Lord, you see the final step. We don't know it. We can't even visualize it right now. But you see it. And we trust you and what you see. And we're willing to follow you on that first step. So I pray that you would bless them. We, as their church family, gather around them. We call them blessed because they have a great God who's our reconciler. We ask for a future of peace in our families, of joy, of worship to you, where you're the greatest. For it's in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.